Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. If the rest of you would open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, 1 through 7 is our text today. I want to begin by asking you a question. Do you trust our government to do what is right? In 1958, that question was asked by a group called the American National Election Study in 1958. And in response to that question, 73% of Americans said they trusted the government to do what is right most of the time or some of the time. 73%. 2014, same question was asked by the Pew Research Center, and the percentage had plummeted to 24%. Three out of four people in the United States do not trust the government to do what is right. Now, of course, this figure has fluctuated over the years, depending on what was going on. Uh, Actually, in 2001, shortly after 9-11, the uh, percentage rose to 60%. 60% of people in America trusted the government to do what is right at that time. But since then, in just uh, 15 years or so, it's plummeted to the rate that it is at now, 24%. I'm sure most of you will identify with me when I say I don't think that I've ever experienced a time where I've seen more cynicism and frustration and anger and kind of hopelessness with regard to the state of our government, particularly in the election season that we're in. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking to see what the Bible says about government. One of the wonderful things about going through a book of the Bible is you take whatever text comes up next, and Romans 13 is next, and Romans 13, 1 through 7, is probably the most explicit passage in the Scriptures about the nature of government. And you might be surprised to find, as I read this passage to you and we explore it, that the Bible does not present the government to us as an enemy, but as a gift. Government is a gift from God, and that's what this passage tells us. My hope is that as we read this that we might get kind of just a broad framework within which we can navigate the next few months as we look forward to a general election in November. And one thing that is important for us to know about this passage is that it was written during a time when a guy named Nero was emperor of Rome. And Nero was not known to be a person friendly to Christianity. This passage is not written in a Christian nation. This passage is written during a time when the authorities were a whole lot more hostile to Christianity than they are now. And yet, watch what Paul says here about our responsibility to government and what government should be like. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, 
and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed honor to whom honor is owed. Lord, we ask that by your Spirit you would open our hearts and open our minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The gift of government. What does the Scriptures teach us? What do the Scriptures teach us about government? Three things that come out of this passage, and the first is this. Government was instituted by God. It's one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted or established, I think the NIV says, by God. God invented government. Government was not man's idea, it was God's idea. Government exists with authority that has been given to it by God. You see that here also in the verse. There is no authority except from God. We might be able to say that government is a divine institution, or at the very least, we should be able to say that government operates with divine approval. Of course, that doesn't mean that God approves of everything that every government does, we know throughout history that government is capable of much tyranny and oppression, but God does approve of the existence of government and its normal functioning in the ideal way that it's set forth here in Romans 13. But I think it would be helpful if we kind of took a step back and asked the question, why was it that God instituted government to begin with? And to understand this, we've got to get some historical context. We've got to go back to the very beginning so we can see why there was a need for government. So if we think of creation, we're gonna go all the way back to Genesis chapter one. We know that God created the heavens and the earth and that God created Adam and Eve as the pinnacle of his creation. Man and woman made in his image and he placed them in a garden and he told them to cultivate and take care of that garden and God also gave them a specific command. He said, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, he's commanding Adam and Eve to start a family, and he wants their family to create other families. And we see here the most basic unit of human civilization is started in the human family. But we also see shortly after that that something happens, and we call this the fall. We see that Adam and Eve rebel against God. 
And because of their sin and their defiance of their maker, sin enters the world and it infects the bloodstream of the human race. So everyone born in history since Adam and Eve is infected with this sinful inclination. And yet at the same time, we have this command to be fruitful and multiply continuing. So we have these two parallel things going on, obedience to God's command to multiply, so families and um, population is spreading throughout the earth, but because of the fall, sin is increasing in the hearts of all these people, and so we have this spreading of wicked, defiant people throughout the world. We see this in Genesis chapter 4, of course, Cain and Abel, immediately we see the effects of sin, where Cain murders Abel, his own brother. So with this situation, a growing population of sinful people, there becomes a need for government to exert some kind of controlling influence on the proliferation of the human race. Government is necessary because men and women are sinful. James Madison, one of our forefathers, said this, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. (laughs) But men and women are not angels, and so God institutes government as a restraining influence. We might say bad government is actually better than no government. If there was no government, it would be literally hell on earth as the wicked inclinations of men, women, and children were able to perpetuate themselves unrestrained. So God creates government. But government is not the answer. God doesn't uh, institute government to change the human heart. God institutes government as a temporary restraint on evil, but the only thing that's going to change human heart is what God did later, that is in sending his son and sending Jesus Christ into the world, the perfect man who enters into this earth and obeys the Father in every way and then goes to a cross and lays down his life to pay the penalty for sins, sheds his blood, takes upon himself the wrath of God and the condemnation that we deserve and is raised from the dead and lives now at the right hand of the Father and says that any who trust in Him can be saved, be brought into proper relationship with Him, have the Holy Spirit living in you so that you can then live a life of obedience to God and not be enslaved to the sin that entered the world through Adam and Eve. And so those who trust in Jesus are incorporated into the church of Jesus Christ And so now we have these two very important entities, church and state. And there's been this tension between the two and many debates throughout history about how the two should relate to each other. But it's through the church that hope for mankind, that the opportunity for true heart change is presented. So the church is given the responsibility to proclaim the gospel. If we have questions about who God is and how we go to heaven and what the Bible means, we go to the church. We don't go to the state for that. It's not the government's domain to teach in those areas. But if the roads in your city are crumbling or somebody steals your car or breaks into your home, you don't go to the church to ask for help with that. You go to the state. And it's very important for us to keep those different domains distinct from each other. 
But both of them are seeking to deal with the sin problem to some degree. Government is very limited in what it can do about the sin problem. Government can't change the human heart. The gospel can, but not everybody's a Christian. And so government exists to put a curb on acts of rebellion and sin. Robert Winthrop, uh, mid-1800s, Speaker of the House uh, in the United States, said this, men, men and women, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by power within them or by a power without them, either by the word of God or by the strong arm of men, or by government is what he means. So we have kind of two families here on earth. We have those who belong to Jesus through faith. We have those who still belong to Adam because they haven't placed faith in Jesus. And we have government to act as a restraint on these wicked inclinations. So as Christians, we're kind of in this unique situation where we have dual citizenship. I mean, we are citizens of heaven. Philippians 3.20 says that. Our citizenship is in heaven. But as believers, we're also citizens of whatever state or nation we happen to believe in. So here today, we are citizens of the United States of America. And we are therefore under the authority, whether you like it or not, of President Barack Obama. And we're also citizens of the state of Indiana, at least most of us are. And whether you like it or not, that puts us under the authority of Governor Mike Pence. Now, it's true that we are citizens of heaven, that we belong to another kingdom. Remember when Jesus was talking to Pilate and he says, my kingdom is not of this world? That's true. There is this Christ-centered kingdom that the Christian belongs to. We have citizenship in that kingdom, but we also have citizenship in earthly kingdoms. So the Christian cannot say, because I belong to Jesus, because I'm a citizen of heaven, therefore I have no obligation to the state or to the government. That is not a biblical conclusion to draw. And some have said that, but I mean, look at verse 2. Whoever resists the authorities, or would say, I'm not under the authority of a governor or king or ruler, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So this is a serious thing, to act as if earthly authorities do not apply to you somehow. Instead of submitting to government out of some kind of attempt to try to change your heart and get into heaven, what God is saying here is that we are supposed to submit to government because it has been given to us as a gift. It is something that we should receive as a mark of his grace and his kindness. We are not to live in fear of government. And so, there's two things I think we can draw from this by way of application as Christians. And particularly in this particular political climate that we have before us today, Christians should take this very seriously. We need to panic less. We need to be less overcome with alarm and panic. We need to remember this context that we're learning here in Romans 13, that government is God's idea, that government is instituted on a limited and temporary basis, that there's only one kingdom that is eternal and will never have an end, and that is the kingdom of Christ. 
kingdoms of this world will all topple one day. And whether it's Hillary or Trump in the White House in November or somebody else, whoever it is, that person will be under the authority of God. And that person will only be able to do what God in his sovereignty and power allows him or her to do. Look at this passage here in Proverbs 21. Very important, I think, for those who might be just overcome with fear about our current election situation. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You could put the word president in the place of king. The president's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We need not panic. Government is God's idea, given to us as a gift. But in addition to panicking less, we should also pray more. We should pray more. Certainly there's an opportunity, a place for us to voice our concerns, to articulate the objections we might have to government and the way government is operating. I'm not saying we don't do that. We should. We should air out our grievances. We should talk about these things. You know, I don't see a command in the Bible to complain about government. I do see a command in the Bible to pray for government. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul says this, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, positions of authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You heard John lead us just a moment ago in praying for our governmental leaders, and we do that on a regular basis here at New Life. I think that's very important for us as a congregation to be praying for our authorities. But I would urge you to be praying privately also for our authorities and for the upcoming election and for the future of our nation. Are you doing that? Do you pray for our authorities? Do you pray for Barack Obama? Do you pray for Mike Pence? Do you pray for Dennis Tyler? Do you pray for Peter Olson? I love what J.C. Ryle says. He was a British theologian in the 1800s, but he says, to expect perfection in kings, prime ministers, or rulers is senseless and unreasonable. We would exhibit more wisdom if we prayed for them more and criticized them less. I think that applies to us in 2016. So government was instituted by God. It's God's idea. Second thing, government, according to this passage, is a servant of the people. Government was instituted for the purpose of acting as a servant. Look at verse Four, where we see this twice. Referring to the governmental authority, he is God's servant, it says, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God. Later on in verse 6, too, the same reason you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. The word for servant, actually, there is the word that we use for deacon, The idea here is that the government should assume a role very similar to the role that a deacon has in a church. And you guys know, I think, what our deacons do. 
Um, they are people who work very hard behind the scenes largely to take care of our property and our building to make this a place where we can come and worship on a regular basis. They are servants at heart. And what Paul is saying here is that's the attitude that should characterize government. It's a servant. Now, I, I want to take just a, a little bit of a tangent here and, and make a comment here because a question that maybe enters our minds at this point is to ask what kind of government or what form of government best allows it to serve people, best allows it to act as a servant or a deacon or a minister. And uh, we have a lot of different opinions about this. And I think it's important for us to realize that the Bible does not prescribe a specific kind or form of government as a Christian government or the most biblical form of government. We don't have that. We can't say, I don't think we can say that capitalism is the Christian form of government or the biblical form of government. You know, personally, I, I happen to favor capitalism. I think there's a lot to be commended about capitalism, but I'm not going to say that in order to be a Christian, you have to be a capitalist. <laughs> there are passages in the Scriptures that I think issue a warning to those who hold to a view that would simply concentrate on the opportunity for people just to maximize earnings as much as possible without regard for the poor. I know not all capitalists are that way, but look at what Psalm 72 says. May the king defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. That's something that government, kings, leaders ought to have an interest in doing, upholding the rights of the poor. Um, so, I don't want to say you have to be a capitalist, but at the same time, there are some who say socialism is the biblical form of government, that socialism is the way God really wants a government to operate, and that's not true either. And sometimes people will go to Acts chapter 4, where we find that the Christians have everything in common, and they're kind of putting their resources into a pot and people are taking things out as they have need and a lot of people point to that and say, see, the Bible teaches socialism. But that passage is about the church. That passage is applied more like with what we did earlier in this service as the deacons passed the plate for our diaconal fund. We have a diaconal fund here. The congregation contributes, people as they have need take out of that diaconal fund for their needs. That's what's in mind in Acts chapter 4. Acts 4 says nothing about government redistributing wealth. And the socialist, perhaps, needs to hear something like 2 Thessalonians 3. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. And so we have a strong emphasis here on personal responsibility. I, I just want to offer that because I know there are strong opinions about these two particular political governmental systems, and we need to be gracious and patient with each other as we work through these. I don't think the Bible prescribes either. What we find here in Romans 13 is really some very simple instructions to government. Just two things here. First of all, we see the government should promote good. Very clear here, verses 3 and 4. 
Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Government exists in part to promote what is good, to encourage what is good, to commend and praise what is good. When citizens do what is good, it should be praised. When you're doing what is wrong, you're fearful. Not like when you're driving in a 30 mile an hour zone and you're going 50 miles an hour and you're looking in your rear view mirror a little more often and your eyes are peeled at every little entrance on the right and the left and the different roads coming up. You're watching for the authorities because you know that you're doing what is wrong and you're expecting to be punished for it. That's the way government works. But the purpose here is not just to just allow people to do good, but it says at the end of verse 3 then that when we do what is good, you will receive his approval. Suggest that government should, to some extent, give its explicit commendation and approval and support when people, when its citizens, do the right thing. I just think that's an interesting question. I'd love your life groups to, to talk about that. How can government be more proactive in that way? I, I think certainly government can promote the good to the degree that it allows for and promotes religious freedom so that Christians can live according to their conscience, so that the gospel can be preached in churches and the kingdom can expand. I think that's a good thing. It's one of the responsibilities of government is to make sure that the church can function like it's supposed to function. It's a good thing. The government does something good when it makes sure that there's equal opportunity for people of all races, minorities included. That's a good thing. When that happens, the government ought to affirm it and commend it. When the vulnerable in our culture and society are protected, particular the unborn. When efforts are made to protect the unborn, the government ought to affirm that and commend it and praise it and communicate that this is a good thing, that the weakest of our society are being protected. When families, men and women, get together and get married and keep their marriage together, and you have a mother and a father in a household raising kids. That's a good thing. That goes back to the basic family unit, as I mentioned, when God created Adam and Eve and told them to multiply. That's how the human race perpetuates itself. That's a good thing. And the government ought to commend it, ought to promote it. So the government is to promote good. We see that very clearly. But then secondly, we see the government should punish evil. And these are really the two things we see given to the government in terms of direct instruction for how it should operate. Verse 4, the government authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Remember, we looked at chapter 12, verse 19, where a couple weeks ago, where Paul says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And I think often we think of that passage as if we're just waiting for the last day when Jesus comes again, the final judgment, and that's when the wrath of God will be distributed but, or executed. 
But here we see that one of the ways that God's wrath is executed is through governmental authorities who punish those who do wrong. This is a good thing. It is good that the government wants to punish wrongdoers. This Thursday uh, of this past week, there was uh, a burglary in a house around the corner from my house, I mean, in my neighborhood, just four or five houses down the road in the middle of the afternoon. And a guy came and kicked in the door and broke in the house and happened to break into the house of uh, an off-duty police officer. And so that police officer made the, the right calls as the, the guy was fleeing and running through our neighborhood. And there were like 12 police cars from the county and the city and Ball State in our neighborhood tracking down this guy. And he was hiding in a trailer and they found him and they caught him and handcuffed him and he's now incarcerated. That's a good thing. I'm thankful for government, thankful for police protecting my neighborhood. And what we're seeing here in Romans 13 is that's something that the government should do. Now, we have this phrase here, bearing the sword, which has been um, somewhat controversial. What, what does that mean? He does not bear the sword uh, in vain. Uh, if we look at other uses of the sword in the Scriptures, we find that that is a reference to execution. It's a, rep a reference to uh, taking of life. Um, Acts 12.2, I think it is. Acts 12.2, I don't have this in my notes, but it's just coming to mind. Um, it says, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Acts 12.2. And if we go back, just looking at the letter that Paul is writing here to Romans, and we go back to chapter 8, we see that Paul says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, our tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? So here's the same Paul referring to sword in chapter 13 who used it in chapter 8. And I think it's pretty clear in chapter 8 he's talking about death. He's saying even if you are to be executed by the sword, it won't separate you from the love of Jesus. That's how great the gospel is. But I think we have to take this word sword to mean the taking of life. And so, you know, there are a lot of questions about capital punishment and whether that should be administered and whether it's administered fairly or justly. And those are our all important discussions for us to have. But I think we can say from this passage that capital punishment is not foreign to the teaching of the Bible. And I think that is what is in mind here in Romans chapter 13. But as government goes about its business of promoting the good and punishing evil, I think the basic posture we ought to have as Christians toward government, again, instead of being afraid of it, is to be grateful for it, to be thankful to God for government. I know that's just got to sound so weird. It sounds weird coming out of my mouth, quite frankly given our political situation. But that's what this passage is teaching us. You know, all of you are going to go home tonight and you're going to go to bed and you're going to sleep peacefully in your beds this evening. You're going to turn out the lights and it's going to be nice and quiet probably in your neighborhood. And you're not going to have to worry about a marauding band of people coming down the street with torches to set your house on fire. You're not going to have to worry about that tonight. 
In a lot of countries, people are worrying about that, but you're not going to have to worry about that. And one of the big reasons why you're not going to have to worry about that is because of government. You can sleep peacefully because of governmental authorities. I had an opportunity at a block party that we had in our neighborhood a few weeks ago to talk to a Muncie City police officer and got to ask him uh, a lot of questions about his job and his service. It was very interesting, very enlightening. And I got to reach out my hand and shake his hand and say, I want to thank you for your service to our community. And, you know, he just, I could just tell, he just looked me right in the eye and said, thank you very much. That means a lot. We don't always feel much support. There's a reason to be thankful for our authorities and in particular those who protect us from wrongdoers and evil in our communities. So government is a servant. And then the last thing that we see here is government should be obeyed by Christians. That's kind of been implicit through all of this, but we see this here mentioned um, <clears throat> at least a couple times. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That certainly includes Christians. Verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection. And then he goes on and he says, um, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So I think what Paul is saying here is that the Christian should obey government not just out of fear of punishment, not just for self-benefit or self-preservation, but because it's the right thing to do, because the Christian knows that he or she obeys a greater king. And while the authorities might not be watching right now, Jesus is. And so the Christian subjects himself or herself to authority. It's like, you know, to use another traffic example, you know, have you ever been driving at maybe 3 a.m. and you get to a stoplight and it's a red light and you're stopped at the stoplight and there's just nobody there. There's no cars coming either way and the light just stays red and you start asking yourself, why am I doing this? There's nobody coming. I could drive right through here. No one's going to see. No one's going to care. The Christian says, I'm staying here until the light turns green. A conscience. Because I'm not just merely obeying the authorities. I'm obeying King Jesus here, sitting at this stoplight. So then Paul goes on and gives some very specific instructions for how the Christian should obey government, verses 6 and 7. For the same reason, you also pay taxes for the authorities, are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now again, just like with a form of government, we don't get a prescription in the scriptures for exactly how much a government should tax its people. We don't have a minimum or a maximum amount. We heard from 1 Samuel chapter 8 that it seems to be the tendency of governments to abuse their freedom to tax. That's true. But the Bible doesn't limit taxation. All we have here is a command to Christians, pay what you owe. Even if it's a whole lot higher than you're comfortable with, pay what you owe. Certainly, Paul has in mind here the words of Jesus in Matthew 22 where Jesus is confronted with this coin and they ask him if they should give taxes to Caesar and Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What Jesus is saying here is, yes, pay your taxes, 
pay Caesar what he owes. Pay God what he owes, what he is owed. That is, give to God what rightfully belongs to him. There's something in this passage that is very important for this whole discussion. Look at Matthew 22, 21. We concentrate on the command to give to Caesar what belongs to him. Notice what Jesus is also saying. There are certain things that belong to God that don't belong to Caesar. One of those would be worship. We worship God. We worship Jesus. We worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We depend on God to provide for our needs. We, co- we depend on Him to defend us and protect us ultimately. We don't worship Caesar. We don't worship the government. It is only God who can require of us unqualified obedience. We are called here to subject ourselves to the governments, to obey the governments that we're under. But I don't think this is a call for unqualified obedience because there are certain things that God might require that the government doesn't. And so I preached on civil disobedience last fall, so I'm not going to get into this in any detail except to say that a general rule of thumb is this, that when the government forbids you to do what God commands or commands you to do what God forbids, then you are in a place to reject governmental authority. I think with God's approval in the scriptures, looking at many examples in the Bible where God's people have not obeyed government but nonetheless received God's commendation, we can say there are times when that is necessary. But that's clearly not what this passage is about. Some people take this passage and they make the whole thing about civil disobedience. That's not the thrust of Paul's message. What Paul is telling us is that government is good. It was instituted by God. That God instituted it so that it could act as a servant to you and to me. And that Christians in particular ought to consider themselves in obedience to it. So friends, just remember, no matter who no matter who is president, and no matter who gets into office in November and starts in January, as abhorrent as it might seem to you that either of the major candidates would be president, Jesus Christ is still king, and no one's going to dethrone him. No one's going to impeach him. No one's going to mount a coup to take him out of office. He reigns now and forevermore, and it is only Jesus who offers light in the darkness and hope to the hopeless and peace to the restless. And we're going to sing about that now as we reflect on what we've learned in Romans 13. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you, God in heaven, that you have given us government. In your wisdom and grace, to act as a servant, to promote the good, to restrain evil. Lord, we're often frustrated with government. Lord, we have many instances where we're disappointed in decisions that are made. Father, would you help us as we seek to work through these things and navigate these things? Would you make us people who pray faithfully for our governmental leaders? Would you give us wisdom to know if there's ever a time when you would call us to resist government? But, Father, we know that ideally what you desire of us is that we obey the authorities that you have placed uh, in our lives, and we ask for your grace to do it well and to your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.